Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 219, Cloth of Gold. Just to remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. If you want to see the smorgasbord of delightful podcasts available, just hop along to agorapodcastnetwork.com and have a look around. Now then, before we get on with the story, I thought, I did, that it would be good to make the most of the fact that we now have all these characters and people about. At some point, in the not-too-distant future, we're going to get onto Anne Boleyn. And actually, given that she's something of an iconic figure, if I can use the I word... I think we should plan to have a hoolie together. You know, along the lines of Richard III when we had all those prizes and votes and debates and all that. And this time, of course, we can indulge my new quiz hobby. Anyway, more about that at some point in the future. But for the moment, I thought we could gently introduce these folks. So rather than having one big bang, da-da, throw about the curtains, here are the Boleyns, let us weave, gentle listeners, let us weave the Boleyns and others into our tapestry as we go. The family of the Boleyns then arrived on the national stage by an absolutely typical route, actually. Steeped in the tradition of the deeply hierarchical nature of the Middle Ages and England's partially deserved reputation for being class-ridden, I think the natural and normal assumption is that English medieval society just didn't do the social mobility thing. And while that is undoubtedly true for the vast majority, there were exceptions. The church provided one escape route from obscurity, the other, of course, was trade and the famously free air of the town. And so, 
In the village of Saul in Norfolk, north of Norwich in the east of England, there was a prosperous peasant, a yeoman, in fact. Now, the word yeoman derives from the word for young man in the context of an attendant in a household, or the more companion type of attendant rather than a simple skivvy. From that root of attendant or companion, it came also to mean by the 15th century a member of the peasantry, but a family with a higher reputation than normal peasant stock. And so the yeoman sits somewhere between the peasantry and the gentry, the place where once upon a time the Franklin used to sit, maybe. The word retained both senses, though, so yeoman of the guard, for example, retains that sense of attendant and companion. While Bishop Latimer's prosperous yeoman father that he spoke of in his trial is the example of the prosperous present, meaning the man able to send his son to school to better himself and his family. Anyway, there we are in Saul in Norfolk, and the son of Geoffrey the yeoman set out one day in a relative way in return the previous night. No, he didn't. That's a limerick. The younger Geoffrey, sometime in the 1420s, took leave of his mother and father, Geoffrey and Alice Boleyn, and set out one day to seek his fortune in London, where he'd heard the streets were paved with gold. Actually, the streets turned out to be paved with poo, but never mind. Young Geoffrey was a bright lad, and he worked hard and made a name for himself. And before you could say inexorable rise of capitalism, Geoffrey had made his fortune as a mercer, to the point of becoming Lord Mayor in 1457-8. to eight. Round of applause for Geoffrey, of course. The boy done good. That's all well and good. But Geoffrey had another objective, to rid the Berlin gown of the whiff of the farmyard. Until that happened, genuine lasting social success would be out of reach. And so he married well, second time around, to the daughter of a bona fide, honest-to-goodness nobleman. He also put his money into socially acceptable stuff, i.e. land. So, by the time of his death in 1463, the Berlins owned both Hever Castle in Kent, the place normally associated with Anne, and also Blickling Hall in Norfolk, which is where Anne was probably really born. Geoffrey's son and heir, William, carried on the good work of gentrification, and by marrying Margaret Butler, the heiress of the Anglo-Irish Ormond family, they really were rubbing shoulders with the rich and mighty. And thence to Thomas Berlin, father of Anne, one of Henry VIII's minions, born in 1477. Thomas dropped the Mercer stuff for good, and he married Elizabeth Howard, the daughter of the Duke of Norfolk, or Earl of Surrey, as he was at that point, and thus became connected with the most powerful magnates in the land. The rise of the Berlins to social acceptability, wealth and power was complete. You can see a rather fascinating consequence of this rise to power if you go to the village of Saul in Norfolk, population 50, unless Alan's away, of course, when it's 49. Saul is a tiny village with an absolutely whopping perpendicular church, and there are brasses there of the original Berlins. It's such a big church because the Berlins and other local families decided to compete to demonstrate their wealth and the glory of their ancestry. And so what you ended up with is a church that even back in the 15th century would have looked a bit out of place. Lovely place, though, should you get the chance to visit, though a bit out of the way. But then, that's Norfolk for you. Anyway, Thomas Boleyn finally shook off all the shop stuff, married Elizabeth Howard, and entered the life of a courtier. He entered the life of a courtier on just 50 quid a year, which wasn't great. But in 1505, happily, his father died, and Thomas was solvent and looking at good prospects as heir of the butler Earl of Ormond. Thomas has something of a grubby reputation. 
and for good reason. One contemporary quote had it that Berlin, quote, would sooner act from interest than any other motive. Essentially, this was a man out for himself. It seems reasonably clear that Thomas Blinn was an active participant in the process of ensuring his two daughters ended up in the king's bed, to the greater glory of the Blinn family. I'm not for a moment, not for a moment suggesting this was a long-range plan. But when the opportunity presented itself, I imagine he didn't stand in their way. Clearly that is deeply debatable, and his daughter Anne would prove quite capable of making her own decisions, but her father set both of his daughter on the path to court at very least. The classic biographer of Anne Boleyn, Paul Friedman, in 1884 described Thomas as, quote, mean and grasping. So we're probably not talking about a shining example of humanity. But equally, it does not do to write Thomas Boleyn off, oh dear me no. Here was a man of talent. And to make progress at court, you had to have some talent, because competition was fierce. You were surrounded by well-connected people, all trying to beat you at your own game. It's the ultimate in corporate politics that would make any boardroom in the world look tame by comparison. The game was to win the ear of your prince, from whom all good things came. To do this, you needed personal skills in abundance. You needed to be fun, witty, good at all the physical stuff, especially with a prince like Henry. You needed the most extraordinarily sensitive antennae to know when to push for that all-important office or grant and when to back off to know which faction had the best prospects, or indeed make your own faction win out. Which means, of course, to influence the mind of your prince. All of this leads both people inside and outside of the court, both then and now, to sneer and dismiss all those magnificently dressed, self-seeking toadies around the king as a bunch of empty, posturing nobodies. Which is unfair, because you needed also to be able to serve the king. Whether that was to get things done, to negotiate at foreign courts, or fight alongside your king. There is that notion of service. The notion of service has become devalued in the modern world despite the efforts of various business gurus. In medieval and early modern days there was nothing demeaning about service at all, whether that meant domestic service in the household of a tenant farmer or a yeoman, or in the household of the king. The line between servant and companion could be wafer thin, We're not talking about the world of Victoriana, with servants pressing themselves to the wall with downcast eyes to avoid meeting the gaze of their betters. Service was honourable. But without doubt, the status of the person you served reflected your own social standing, as well as the potential gains from their relationship. So, it's unsurprising that the King's was a popular service to go for. So, Thomas Boleyn started the game in a good place. His wife, Elizabeth Howard, is sister to the Earl of Surrey, Thomas Howard, who will become Duke of Norfolk. He was, from the very start, very close to the king, one of his minions. He was given the Order of the Bath by being knighted at the new king's coronation. He carried the canopy over the little Princess Mary at her christening. And he had undoubted talent. As I say, he was a well-educated man. He was articulate, speaking multiple languages. He looked good and made sure he always looked impressive at court. He had all those physical skills. He was a skilled jouster, taking a leading part in the 1511 tournament as one of the main answerers alongside the Marquess of Dorset and Charles Brandon. He knew his stuff. He knew his horses. He knew hawking and hunting, bowls, even the game of shuffleboard. So he could entertain the king. He could keep him good company. But he was also prepared to be tireless in his service, to work night and day. Now, 
You might say that sometimes night and day might mean pratting about looking after a bunch of royal visitors or the king's sister. That sounds like the kind of tireless you could deal with. But Berlin would have been on call every moment of every day and every night. And if commanded to travel, he would have to travel immediately. His talents as a diplomat relied on his personal abilities to entertain and engage, as well as the more hard-edged skills of negotiation. And at this, he was really good. There's the story of his meeting with Margaret of Savoy, regent of the Netherlands. Margaret was no pushover in any company. Thomas breezily started matters off by betting they could have the negotiations done in ten days. Margaret took him up on it. In the end, Thomas won his bet. But more importantly, the negotiations were concluded to his prince's satisfaction and Henry marked him down as his best negotiator. So, my point is, don't be too hard on all these courtiers. They are working as well as pratting. They give up their time and their freedom. They also, of course, have to give up a fair amount of their personal honour and quite possibly self-respect. I am put in mind of Mark chapter 8, verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? I have to say that until I looked that up, I was pretty convinced that was Homer Simpson, so I'm quite relieved to know that it was in fact the Bible. But to gain your rewards, you would have to count out to power in the most abject way. You would have to flatter and deceive, to lie and manipulate. Thomas Wyatt is a poet often quoted in these discussions, and we'll talk about him more in the future, but he's kind of the Henrician equivalent of Peter of Blois, moaning and wailing about the pain and agony of being at court. I have to say, I've never been good at poetry, so I can barely understand a word of it. But essentially, he brings it home that to succeed, you will need to buy friends, batten on to the rich and elderly, marry for money. If you have an attractive female relative, you'll sell her for the best price you can get, and you will never let friendship get in the way of your own advantage. The point I'm laboriously trying to make is that while, yes, Thomas Blinn would never be sanctified alongside Thomas More or John Fisher, he was simply doing what many others had done before and would have to do since. It was a job. It required talent and persistence and determination. It was not a situation of his making. Maybe he played it with rather too much enthusiasm, but judge him in context. I would also note that while Berlin clearly had self-interest constantly at heart, it was not just his own personal self-interest, but the self-interest of the Berlin family as a whole. Anyway, here's an example and actually a chance to return to the narrative. And then next time we'll talk about the Berlin Kiddies. In 1519, Wolsey was a worried man. And Wolsey had a problem. On the one hand, he was firmly in control. Things were looking good. He was at the right hand of his prince. And he'd proved really adroit at managing the young prince. Henry would spend his time hunting, messing about, and this suited Wolsey fine. He could slip a paper in front of the king, distract him with a ball ball, get the required agreement and be on his way. While the king was off with his pals, Wolsey got on with the business of controlling patronage, getting things done, exercising power. But, actually this approach had a problem. Wolsey in practice spent very little time physically with the king. In 1517, for example, there was a gap of six months, although Wolsey's illness and Henry's hypochondria didn't help that particular situation. Meanwhile, Henry would eat, sleep and even excrete in the presence of his minions. They all had that time to influence him in patronage and in policy. Most of them, Berlin included, were much more hawkish than Wolsey was 
when it came to foreign policy, egging the king on to war. And then, in 1518, many of his minions went on a trip to France. Basically, we're talking about a bunch of folks that back in the days of my youth we'd have called Hooray Henrys, with all the manners and arrogance that went along with it. Once in France, Francis I had recognised the possibilities of the situation and had welcomed them, smothered them with charm and attention. Francis was himself something of a lad, saw an opportunity for a good time and so got dressed up in disguise and went out on the lash with the English guys. And thus was established the tradition of the English on holiday, where they duly disgraced themselves, quote, throwing eggs, stones and other foolish trifles at the people. Which sounds like a disgraceful waste of a nice trifle to me, but clearly they had fun. Blown away by a king who could outlash them, the hoorays of the court immediately adopted everything French as clearly superior to anything English, just as people laughably today reckon those horrid little fruit tarts are better than a good honest chunk of lardy cake. And so when they got home, all these minions mocked anyone at court not sufficiently sophisticated and Frenchified. Quote, they were all French in eating, drinking and apparel, yea, and in French vices and brags, so that all the estates of England were by them laughed at. The ladies and gentlemen were dispraised, so that nothing by them was praised, but if it were after the French turn. Well, such a thing is, of course, unthinkable. But in more practical terms, it also meant that into the king's ears was poured pro-French opinion that affected Wolsey's policy. Wolsey could brook no rivals, no factions. It all got in the way of good governance. There was queen gossip and her handmaiden rumour all over the place. It was even rumoured at court that the Duke of Suffolk had used magic to get at his rival William Compton and land him with a diseased leg. More importantly to the good cardinal, of course, it also got in between Wolsey's lips and the king's ear. The minions were with the king the whole time. They were the king's mates. The king listened to them. Even the Venetian ambassador noticed that the minions were, quote, so intimate with the king that in the course of time they might have ousted him from the government. The minions needed a good dose of the exercise of power and so Wolsey needed a change of tack. In May 1519, then, Wolsey went before the council and denounced the behaviour of the minions. This lot are misbehaving, he said. They are taking liberties with the king's better nature. They were, quote, youths of evil nature and intent on their own benefit to the detriment, hurt and discredit of the king. Rather cutely, Henry went along with it. Really, Henry is more biddable with Wolsey than he'll ever be with anyone else. And so the result was that a bunch of hoorays were indeed banished from Henry's side. Carew, Brian, Neville, Points, Guildford, all sent packing while Henry sheepishly looked on. They were replaced with really dull and boring placemen of Wolsey, who would work hard but when dug in the ribs by their king for a, ooh, I don't know, spot of gambling, would instead head off back to their sheds for a bit of a podcast and a kit. But that was just stage one for Wolsey. The next stage was to keep Henry thoroughly occupied so he didn't have time for fun and laughter with the lads. A flood of administrative reform proposals came through, and again Henry meekly got his head down and started to work with them. Wolsey had shown the world who was boss. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Thomas Berlin then was to learn the self-same lesson. By this stage, Berlin was ambassador in Paris. Then in May 1519, he wrote back to Wolsey that he'd heard extraordinary news, not from Wolsey, nor from the court, but from King Francis himself in Paris. News about, quote, Carew, Brian, Neville, Guilford, Piche, Points, and one whose name he could not tell, that the king and his council, one day at Greenwich, sent for them and said, How the brute was that they, after their appetite, governed the king! that they should no more come to court, but Weston and the deputy of Calais Kingston and Jerningham were put in their place. Every man's tongue in Paris is full of it. Obviously this was a bit horrifying, but nonetheless at least it wasn't Berlin being punished. And as a companion of the king, when he'd been in London, Berlin had used a great opportunity to get a bit of business put his way. He was a great example, actually, of the new service aristocracy for which the English monarchy was now looking. Forget the knight with a suit of armour, a horse and a big sword. The army was now made of mercenaries anyway. Henry was looking for a series of utility backs, like Berlin. But the prid quo quo was payment of these people by patronage. So, last time in London, Berlin had popped the question, Hey, king, next time the controllership of the royal household comes up, What about, hey, you know, yours truly, you know? Henry probably slapped him on the back and said, sure thing, Tommy baby, before diving into the underbrush to catch a squirrel with his bare teeth. So, in 1519, Berlin reminded Wolsey and Henry of the fact that the controllership was up for grabs and he'd been promised it. So, here we go. Wolsey's opportunity to put an upstart courtier firmly in his place. First of all, Wolsey makes it quite clear to Berlin who he needs to speak to here. That would be Thomas Wolsey then. No, no, he said. It'll be a chap called Poynings go first. Oh, he might make Berlin treasurer just thinking about it. For Berlin, it's time to get down on the belly. Back goes a letter from Berlin, as abject as you like. Oh, please, Wolsey lad, please help me with the king. Think what a discouragement it would be to me and my friends. Maybe Wolsey has perceived some fault in poor old Berlin, and therefore will promote a worthier man. Oh, please help me, and I will, and I quote, take care that neither the king nor he repent themselves of it. Exit dignity, stage left, weeping. There's still a little fight left in Berlin, though, that Wolsey doesn't like. Still on edge of, well, the king had promised. So, He sent a message confirming that no, Poynings would be the lucky guy this time and Berlin, well, Berlin would maybe, possibly, perhaps become treasurer at some unspecified point. Berlin knew exactly what was being asked of him here. There would be no raising of a grievance procedure here for a wrongful recruitment process, followed by a tribunal and reprimand for the errant manager and substantial out-of-court settlement. Oh, dearie me, no. What was required was complete submission. 
and so complete submission is what Wolsey got. Whatever grant he has had of the king, he now resigns it to the king and Wolsey's hands as the bearer will further inform him. He is much bound by Wolsey's promise. Honour was satisfied. Bolin, in fact, got his office. Because the point had been made, Wolsey was boss. Bow to Wolsey and do his bidding and you'll get the goodies. Try to go straight to the king and you'll be squished like a bug. Boleyn would not try to bypass Wolsey again, or that is to say he would not bypass Wolsey again until he had found himself a way to trump Wolsey's influence. At some point, it would occur to Boleyn that these trumps might have names, specifically Mary and Anne, but we'll come to that later. Sadly for Wolsey, his approach to purge the court of minions was only temporarily successful, because the next time Henry looked round with the squirrel between his teeth looking for a bit of fun, only grey hairs stared back at him across the table. And meanwhile, to be honest, Wolsey got a bit bored of all those administrative reforms and they were quietly dropped, so Henry had time to think again. And so by the following year, the minions were in fact back. But maybe they'd learned a lesson. Wolsey was the enemy of Hooray's and they needed to show him due deference, while they found a method of getting him out of the way. Permanently. Oakley-doakley, let us talk once more of cabbages and kings, with maybe some shoes and ships and sealing wax thrown in for good measure, otherwise known as the continuing story of international diplomacy. So, we've had the Treaty of London, or Treaty of Universal Peace as it is also known. As the title sort of implies, there was to be peace, and it was to be universal. No one was going to be nasty to anyone ever again. There would be flowers and the beating of swords into ploughshares. So, it won't surprise you to learn that Emperor Charles and King Francis started plotting to destroy each other almost as soon as the seals were sealed. But it might surprise you to learn that the same is not true of Henry. Now, I am conscious of a slight feeling that I'm being nice to Henry in these episodes about his early reign, since I suspect I'm going to be very nasty to him later. But once more, give the lad his due. He took the thing seriously. I mean, OK... It might be that he did that because he had a paltry treasury and army compared to his opponents, and because the Treaty of Universal Peace was essentially his treaty, and therefore added to his glory and general luster. But nonetheless, he did his duty by the treaty, which is more than can be said for Fran and Charlie Boy. Actually, there is some debate about how well-behaved Henry and Wolsey were being in fact. Some historians say for sure, and I will tell you why. Essentially, one of the principles of the treaty was that in order to avoid war war, there needed to be a certain amount of jaw-jaw. So, Henry arranged to go and have a powwow with Francis, which was delayed because of the election of the Holy Roman Emperor thing, but when that was over, it was agreed that in 1520, Henry and Francis would indeed meet up. Chew the cud. Share the pipe of peace. Well, you can imagine that Charles immediately had the most enormous attack of FOMO and his ambassador was over to the English court like a rat up a drain, trying to arrange a meeting between Charles and Henry or even get that meeting with Francis cancelled so they couldn't talk about Charles together. Well, and they just partly managed it. Getting a meeting between Henry and Charles for three days, mainly spent drinking and dancing, of course. Most of the talking was done away from prying eyes, even from Wolsey's but the odd snippet does creep out, and it's interesting, if slightly nauseating. Charles might be incredibly powerful, 
but he's only 20 to Henry's 29 and new on his throne, he appears still to have an edge of deference. So after the event, one of Charles's letters to Henry refers to, quote, the good advice you gave me like a good father when we were at Canterbury. You can imagine it, can you not? The unctuous and condescending offering of advice by the older Henry, Henry's conviction that he held a balance of power between Habsburg and Valois, that he was the arbiter of Christendom, and that all were bending their knee to his glory. Also worth noting that when he was over, Charles went to meet his aunt while he was there, who is, of course, Catherine of Aragon. Just checking you hadn't forgotten. It will be important. Anyway, ah, say the critics, ah. So the meeting between Henry and Francis was just a blind then. Henry and Wolsey were playing both ends against each other, oh perfidious Albion. Well, no, it seems a bit unreasonable. In fact, although they would eventually sign a treaty between Henry and Charles, there was nothing in that treaty that contravened the Treaty of Universal Peace. In fact, Charles explicitly tried to draw Henry into an alliance against France, and Henry refused. Henry's been accused of hypocrisy, that he said he loved Francis and his little cotton socks when he really hated his guts. Well, ha! welcome to international diplomacy. In fact, Henry appears to have done his best to make the Treaty of Universal Peace last forever. Predictably, it was an epic fail, but he could hold his head up high for effort. Nonetheless, let us not fail to drink deeply from the cup of irony, and the cup to be filled many times at the river of the stream, the waterfall, the cascade of irony that is the field of the cloth of gold. Because that is what the meeting in June 1520 between the young kings of England and France shall be called. No one is quite sure why it's called that, actually. It could be that it reflected the magnificence of the tents and clothes of the nobility and the royalty that met together. It could be that it comes from the Val d'Or, the name of the valley in which the kings met. The first irony was that the meeting place was close to the Pale of Calais, which the French would give their eye teeth to get back. And it was actually near the town of Ardre, which just four years before had been ravaged by the English. But the point of the meeting was to be that in the place of suspicion and mistrust, there would be sober discussion. And in place of war, there would be jousting, dancing, and in times of dire need, hopping. If Henry and Francis had been two birds of paradise competing for a mate, there could not be greater chance for posturing and desperate striving for social supremacy. Underneath all the smiles was a sea of hormones in which the entire company waded. Francis was Henry's nemesis, just a bit younger, quite a lot richer, considerably more successful in war. He was also hideously promiscuous and successful with the women, described by one of his courtiers as, quote, of such slight morals that he slips readily into the garden of others and drinks the waters of many fountains. If you know what I mean, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. He was as renowned a hunter as even was Henry. Francis had mourned for days when his favourite hound died and then ordered him skinned and his hide made into gloves, which is a thought, actually. I may suggest it to my very own hound. Anyway, let us slip through the ostentation of the Field of the Cloth of Gold, because it has got to be the most glittering of glittering events. A retinue of 6,000 made their way over from England to northern France. England was emptied of its nobility. The first plan had been to put the king up at the castle of Guine, part of the English Pale of Calais, 
but it was too run down apparently, so an entire palace of brick and wood was constructed for the just 16 days of the event, including even a fountain running constantly with wine and a secret passageway back to Gien so that Henry could nip out when he wanted to. The place was a blizzard of finery, with every noble competing to out-dazzle their own countrymen and, of course, out-dazzle the French. Not even the Joneses would have dared to go to this party. Henry's retinue alone demanded 2,800 tents, and the amount of food consumed was, of course, hideous. 800 calves, 1,300 chickens, for example, and 7,000 whiting, which is interesting. Who counted them? Counting whiting is an unrewarding experience, I'd have thought, but there you go. As the English and French advanced towards a shallow valley, the Val d'Or, the astonished peasantry watched from the hills gaping at the finery and excess on display. Back at home, Bishop John Fisher would be deeply disapproving. Never before was seen in England such excess of apparelment, he thundered. Cardinal Wolsey organised the whole affair, every biscuit, pig, chicken, roll of cloth of gold, every dance, every kiss. On the first day, it was of course essential that neither one of Henry or Francis gained precedence. So, Henry was at one end of the valley, Francis at the other. At the signal, they both galloped towards each other, and there in the middle of the valley embraced each other, with 30 man-hugs apparently, until they finally declared themselves satisfied. Good Lord. From then on, it was an endless round of jousting, feasting and dancing, all of course above a tense undercurrent of competition, of vying to be the most courtly, the most magnificent, the most butch. And of course against the background of national rivalry. So let me illustrate this all with a couple of incidents. There we are, French and English nobles standing watching Henry and Francis hit it off. Lord Leonard Grey turns to his neighbour and says subtly in a voice that only a deaf bloke just outside Istanbul would miss, says, If I had a drop of French blood in my body, I would cut myself open to be rid of it. Eager not to spoil the occasion, his neighbour replied, So would I. Great. Henry had them banged up immediately, but the truth, of course, is that the Anglo-French hatred ran deep in an age that saw nothing wrong with a bit of good, honest xenophobia. The other incident is a really famous one, the wrestling match. So, there they are. The royal families are sitting around eating bonbons and thinking of far, far away. There's Henry and Catherine and Francis and his wife, Claude. They've just had an archery competition and Henry has beaten Francis. His blood is up. The river of male hormone is running particularly fast and deep. Suddenly, the river breaks its banks. Henry leaps up, grabs Francis by the collar in a mock fun thing and says, Come, you shall wrestle with me. His blood is up. He's been a winner once. He's on a roll. He'll throw Francis in the mud. Women will swoon with excitement and desire. Small boys will giggle and Henry will be the colossus bestriding the world like Ozymandias, king of kings. Horrified squeals from courtiers and diplomats. No, this cannot happen. But Henry is out of control. This is his moment. No one will stop him. Ha ha! Before you could say plonker, Henry VIII by the grace of God, King of England, France and Lord of Ireland, was on his ass, but there in no uncertain manner by the French king with a cheeky throw. Disaster! I cannot imagine the horror and humiliation that Henry felt. It would have been the worst thing he could have ever imagined, being tipped on his backside by his arch-rival. 
He sprang to his feet. Again, he roared. Yeah, right, as if Francis were going to allow that to happen. This time, they were engulfed in a tidal wave of diplomats and a rematch was avoided. It's worth noting, actually, that probably unsurprisingly, the women came out of the whole thing much better than the blokes did. So it was Queens Catherine and Claude that separated the two. When an awkward moment of precedence came up about who should kiss at the Pax board first, they resolved it by kissing each other instead. The field of the cloth of gold is probably worth more time to the lover of early modern manners, fashion, entertainment, etiquette and so on. But that's really as far as it goes. It really achieved very little, or indeed nothing. All it proved was, in the words of John Matusak, that Cardinal Wolsey was the greatest picnic organiser in history. That's it for now as it happens. Next week there's another episode called Disguisings in which we talk about the Berlins a bit more but also a lot about masks and disguisings. This is partly at least because I feel we've had six or seven episodes on the bounce all about politics and international diplomacy so I thought maybe you needed a change and a bit of cultural stuff. If that's not right then that's a problem. Oops, sorry and all that. Then I'm on holiday, which is awkward, so I've lined up an example of a Shedcast Extra I did so you can get a flavour of life in the garden of members. It's an extra above and beyond the normal requirement for membership, so I'm sure the members won't mind. And maybe, just maybe you'll enjoy it. It's only a few minutes. Don't forget to come and sign up to become a member. If you feel at all tempted, just go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk. It is a trifle. And now we not only have podcasts, we have quizzes. So there. Anyway, enough. Be gone. Have fun, everyone, and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.